So, yeah, my name is Ron. Some of you know me, some of you might not. I am not one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh, typically, I serve in areas of worship, music, uh, but today I am bringing the word. So, we are going to be turning through Luke chapter 1 today. Uh, we're going to be walking through the story of Zechariah together. So, if you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke chapter 1. I will also have the text available on the screen. So three things that I believe that the word is speaking to us as Cornerstone today. First, God has done great things for you and the ancestors of your spiritual family. Remember this. Second, that God has promised to do great things in the future. Wait in eager anticipation. And last, in the present moment of remembering and waiting, release joy fully in your worship of our God who is truly good. So part of understanding uh, a story is to know the context of the story. So that is to say, what's going on in the story? Who wrote the story? What were they going through? What was their world like? Those sorts of things that provide us with a setting that the story takes place in. All that stuff helps us to make sense of what's going on in the story. So uh, if you know me well at all, you might know that I'm a huge music nerd. I love all things classic rock, uh, especially the Beatles. I also like this little band from the 90s called Weezer. Um, but one of my favorite things about music, one of the things I find most alluring, is the fact that songs have meanings. And this is pretty straightforward. Some of you are probably thinking like, oh, duh, Ron. Songs, of course, have meanings. But like, seriously, have you ever just been blown away by a song's meaning? Like when you actually connect with a song and it clicks with you and it does something, that can be crazy awesome. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something that I really, really love about music. But I do like to go a layer deeper with it. And <laughs> this drives... My wife, Elena, crazy, by the way. I like to know the story behind the song. So that is to say the context of the song. Like, when was the song written? Who was it written by? What were they going through when they wrote it? What was the world like when they wrote it? I want to know all that stuff. Because, to me, it impacts the song in a very important way. So, give you two examples. The first one's kind of silly. There's a song from, I think it's like the mid to late 90s. It's a song that's called Closing Time. Does anybody... No closing time. So uh, it's, a band, it's by a band called Semisonic. And uh, it, at first listen, it kind of sounds like a song about getting bounced from a bar. It's the one that goes, closing time, time for you to go out to the... You guys know it, I hope. <laughs> so anyways, at first listen, that's what it sounds like it's about. It's about getting bounced from a bar. But actually, the songwriter, his name is Dan Wilson. And Dan explains that this song was actually written... Uh, shortly after he had found out that he was going to become a father. The whole song is actually about childbirth. And so once you know that, then all these lyrics take on a completely different meaning. It goes from, you know, getting bounced at a bar to uh, that, that line that I just sang, uh, time for you to go out to the places that you will be from. That changes when you think about it in terms of childbirth. Like, for example, when I came out, I was from Lebanon, you know? So, um, yeah, silly example. I'll give you another example. So, um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the hymn, It Is Well. I hope most of you are, maybe some of you. It's the one that goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my bed, and sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast tossed me, taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So this is a pretty beautiful song. In fact, it like, takes a lot for me not to sing it when I read it. Uh, it's just very well written. And you don't need to know a lot about the background in order to appreciate this song. But again, I think knowing the background does something. 
So just really quick, this song specifically, it's written by a guy, his name is Horatio Spafford. Um, written somewhere, I think like 1870s-ish. Uh, and he wrote it shortly after his family had been planning a time of rest in Britain. And he had some work to do before actually leaving for Britain, so he had sent his family, his wife and four children, four daughters, ahead of him on a ship. Four days after they had left, he got communication that that ship had been wrecked. Nine days later, he received a communication from his wife, which just said simply, saved alone. So he left right away to go and be with his wife in Britain, and while he was on the ship to be reunited with her, he wrote this song. And this changes things pretty drastically, right? Like, just to know that these beautiful words, these lyrics, came from such a time, such a circumstance as this, just deepens the meaning. So in the same way, Luke 1 has this prophetic poem. It's a song that comes from the licks of Zechariah, starting in verse 68. Some of you might know it by its Latin name, the Benedictus. So I will read it here. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So let's look at Zechariah's song in its surrounding context. Who is he? What is he going through? What things was he doing just before he wrote this song? So we're going to start at the beginning, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and stop, we're going to analyze that a little bit here. So Luke starts by giving us some context. He would expect his readers here to know what the political and spiritual atmosphere is like during the reign of King Herod. Now first, politically, Herod was a puppet of the Roman Empire. He was seen as an immoral leader who oppressed the Jewish people for the sake of maintaining good relations with Rome. He was mentally unstable and paranoid. Also, Herod was not a king from the line of David, and this was important to the Jews because they knew that the rightful king of Judea, or Judah, ought to be one who comes from the Davidic line. Luke's gospel, interestingly enough, starts out with an illegitimate king on the throne. In addition to all of that, Luke's gospel begins at the end of what's called the intertestamental period. That is the amount of time, which is roughly 400 years, between the end of the Old Testament, which would have been marked by the prophet Malachi, and where Luke's gospel picks up. Um, During this time, it is noted that prophecy had been silent. So the Jewish people were for 400 years without the voice of God. So really quick summary of all of that. The The Jewish people were at this time oppressed by an illegitimate king and had been without a prophetic voice, or put another way, the voice of God had been silent for roughly 400 years. This story starts by acknowledging this cultural tension. So moving on, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, 
because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So let's start with names, because names are important. So we have the priest, uh, Zechariah. His name means remembered by God. And then we have his wife, Elizabeth, which means oath of God. And the both of them are considered righteous before God. Now we're also told that they're well along in years and have no children. And something that a couple of commentators have noted about this is that there are cultural implications that come along with being barren and childless. It is widely believed that at that time, if you could conceive and have children, that it was the direct result of some sin. Therefore, being barren was a blemish and would have a social stigma attached to it. Now, I can't help but imagine that this is something that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been grieving and praying about for many years. And to have this social stigma, this blemish attached to them because of it, only acted to make their situation much, much worse. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So during the time of Zechariah, there were thousands of priests that would have been able to serve in the temple in various different ways, uh, including the burning of incense. And so in order to determine who did what, they cast lots. And if you were selected for a specific temple duty, it was considered a great responsibility and a great honor. So no doubt, this was huge for Zechariah. He was probably very excited about this. Um, And that process of burning incense in the temple, by this time it was a part of a very well-established ritual that we first learn about in the book of Exodus. So during this service, there's three persons appointed to different duties in the temple. So the first person has the job, the first priest, has the job of bringing burning coals into the temple and placing them on the golden altar. The second priest, his job is to set up the incense and get those prepared. And then once those jobs are done, those guys get out of there. And they leave the third priest in this situation, Zechariah, in the temple. Uh, And in the temple, this priest would pray for the nation. So then it says that there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. So I can personally guarantee that whatever Zechariah was thinking this was going to be like, this ain't it, Captain. (laughs) Uh, So a couple of commentators have actually noted that if you were pulled for this specific responsibility of burning incense, that an older priest who has done this before would sort of take you under their wing and they'd say, uh, okay, so you're going to go in, the altar's going to be here, you're going to stand here, and this is what it's all going to be like. And he's probably in there and just thinking, like, they forgot to tell me this. Like, this would have been nice to know. So I just think that's kind of funny. So he gets freaked out, and then the angel um, does what angels do when, pe- when people get freaked out by them. The angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So in this next part, I just want to take a second and just appreciate the connectedness of Old Testament and New Testament scripture. So this next part says that he will go before him and him here being Jesus, so he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So remember at the beginning, I mentioned the last prophet before the book of Luke was written was Malachi. And in Malachi, we get some remarkably similar language in his prophecy to the Jewish people. 
So just for some really quick background on the book of Malachi, it is a prophetic writing that essentially captures a conversation between God and the people of Israel, where the people doubt God's goodness. So chapter 1, verse 2 of Malachi opens the book this way. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Then we find out that the Jewish people have developed some sketchy practices regarding sacrifices, marriage, and divorce, and tithing. In this book, the people want God to bring justice to others, but want God to turn a blind eye to their own wrongdoings. After rebuking the priests, God responds and offers deliverance and mercy. But not the way that the Jewish people expect. One of the things that he says is this, and this is in Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now compare that with Luke's passage in chapter 1, verse 17 again. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what we can see here is that the angel is telling Zechariah that his son will be the one to go before the Lord, the messenger who will go before the Lord. And then how does Zechariah respond to this news? Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah responds to the angel here the same way that the Jewish people responded to God when he said that he loved them, with doubt and skepticism. You see, according to their view of the world, God must be mistaken. Their view of the world is one that has been forced into alignment with their perspective of the world. And this faulty view of God is guilty of being too narrow to allow for a full picture of who he is. And that faulty idea of who God is leads us to faulty ideas about things like his goodness or to us placing limitations on how God can and will act in the world. Brandon Hanks reminded us last week that even the Psalms invite us into this place of acknowledging our limitations and comprehending the totality of God's goodness. We can't do it. But even in acknowledging our limitations, the scriptures time and time again exhort us into proclaiming his goodness. So we ought to recognize that God exceeds our limited perspective. Instead of going the other way around where our limitations inform our perspective on who God is. Um, I'm reminded of Barry Nam's benediction from last week, in which he told us about a Christmas ornament that he and his family were gifted with. Uh, and this ornament had something written on it. It said something to the effect of, when you think you've got the lion, you get the lamb. And when you think you've got the lamb, you get the lion. And he said that the goodness of God is embodied in both the lion and the lamb. So when we or the world around us thinks that we need the one, often we end up getting the other. And this could lead us to a place of saying that from our perspective, God does not know what he is doing. I'm reminded of Jim Eikenberry uh, and the, Jesus, you're not doing it right. God, you're not doing it right. So it could lead us to this place where we say, God, you just don't know what you're doing, but he does. It is our place to suspend judgment on God's goodness, for we hold the limited perspective. And just as God responds to the doubting Jewish people in the book of Malachi by reminding them of his goodness and love, the angel responds to Zechariah by reminding him of who he is talking to. It says, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so Zechariah receives a sign here that the angel Gabriel means business, but I'm sure it's not the kind of sign that he was hoping for. Um, but again, just similar to the, the story of Malachi, where the people, the Jewish people, received deliverance and mercy from God. Again, not in the way that they had hoped or expected. So then it goes on to say that the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So I know it's not funny, but I think it's kind of funny that Zechariah's had like the craziest day of his life in the temple. He saw an angel, and he comes out, and people are like, dude, what took you so long? And he's just like, Ugh. like he can't say anything, even if he wanted to, absolutely nothing. So he's forced into like miming and charading his way into telling people like that he saw angels and stuff. I can just imagine that this was a very comical encounter. So after a long day at the temple, Zechariah goes home. So going on, it says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. So just as the angel Gabriel had said, Elizabeth became pregnant, and she was overjoyed at this. I love Elizabeth's response here, where it's just one where she just goes straight into praising God. She praises him for removing the stigma of barrenness from her. And of course, this is, this is not just a story about Elizabeth becoming pregnant. It is, as one commentator says, about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story. Precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish self-giving love. So skipping ahead a bit here to the birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. So quick story that's not really related to any of this, but I think it's funny because this reminds me of it. Oops. Um, so we have uh, three children. We've got two daughters and a son. My second daughter, her name is uh, Zephyr. And shortly after Zephyr was born, the nurse came into the room to collect information from us, and she got to the point where she asked me what the name of the child would be. And so I was under the impression that we were still talking about this. <laughs> and so I began to um, explain to the nurse, that we're not quite sure yet. We're going to need a little bit more time on that. And then Elena just completely interjects and is like, no, her name is Zephyr. And she just had this, you know, like crazy look in her eyes. And at that point, I knew that there's no arguing with a woman who just gave birth to a child. So her name is Zephyr. And it suits her. It's a beautiful name for her. Um, so anyways, going, going back here. So his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, which I think is kind of funny because he's not deaf, he's mute. So that must have been getting annoying. So they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. 
Now, I'm going to call back something that I brought up towards the beginning of this, and that is that span of 400 years between the Old and New Testaments where God was silent. I find something really fascinating about a similarity that I noticed between both of these stories. And that similarity is, that the, is the fact that both of these stories have a prophetic word followed by a time of silence. So that begs the question then, what's the deal with the silence? What's that about? I can't say for sure. But here are some observations. For Zechariah, we can see that he went through a lot of internal changes during his time of silence, awaiting the birth of his son. And I can't say for sure what the people of Israel were going through during those 400 years, but I'm pretty confident that while they were waiting for God's voice, their anticipation was growing. And anticipation can be a great cultivator of joy. Perhaps the effect that waiting had upon the people of Israel over those 400 years was similar to the effect that waiting had upon Zechariah as he looked forward to the birth of his son. N.T. Wright says this, that Zechariah comes across in this passage, especially in the prophetic poem, as someone who has pondered the agony and the hope for many years, and who now finds the two bubbling out of him as he looks in awe and delight at his baby son. Cornerstone. God has done great things for you and the ancestors of your spiritual family. Remember this. Cornerstone, God has promised to do great things in the future. Wait in eager anticipation. And in the present moment of remembering and waiting, Cornerstone, release joy fully in your worship of our God, who is truly good. And so with all of this waiting, pondering, and anticipation, Let us join Zechariah's bursting out of silence and express true, joyful worship. Uh, Team, you can come back up. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. You are the God of words. You are the God of silence. You are the God of joyful laughter, and you are the God of song. Lord, would you turn our hearts toward you? May you keep your hope kindling within us. And would you set our hearts on fire with your hope. Hope that increases our anticipation and anticipation that increases our joy in you. Both now and on that day of your return. Oh, how we anxiously await your return, Father. As we wait, our anticipation grows. Let us place no limitations on our worship. May we offer the greatest, most beautiful, and lavish worship that we can muster. And let us bring you the greatest praise that our voices can lift. And would you help us, a fickle people, not to forget you and what you've done for us. 
Help us to remember you, O Lord, to remember what you've done and what you've promised to do. We thank you for your enduring words and enduring love. Will you increase in us and in so doing, increase our joy in you. Amen.